Hello and welcome everybody to According to Andrew number 113, America's Civil War II Logistics. Um, this is something that I don't think a lot of people have uh, given consideration. I've been listening to uh, a couple of things. Uh, Tree of Woe uh, has had some World War III stuff that was really interesting. That He did talk about logistics to a certain extent. He was talking about um, total war mobilization between uh, United States, China, and Russia, which I found very interesting. It kind of spurred on some of these ideas that have, have been kind of bouncing around in my head. And then uh, Paul Fahrenheit had a uh, article where he talked about uh, the American Civil War 2.0, uh, but he was looking at it on where the battle lines would be drawn. And I want to look at it from a logistical standpoint, uh, kind of potential, not like potential key areas to look at, but kind of um, some of the some of the things that are need to be considered when uh, operating on a war footing and, and things like that, and how much uh, ammo and stuff like this, all this stuff takes, um, to kind of give people perspective on uh, you know, the fact that it's maybe not as cut and dry and stuff like that, and why I think it's going to end up devolving into a uh, World War One um, trench warfare style um, situation. Um, basically, to in summary, it's because of the logistical constraints, you're not going to be able to do a lot of the high-tech stuff that we currently have, uh, but I will build my case uh, as we go here. So... Um, we get, let's see here. Nope, wrong one. So yeah, so these are, so if we, oh, there we go. So, um, so these are the six different kind of things that are broken down on the, in the United States, um, between the electrical grid, the bridges, the railroads, the pipelines, the waterways, and the airports. These are going to be critical infrastructure to hold and control that allow you us to operate various supply lines, um, I get, oh, one thing that's not on here is all of the, um, highways, I forgot to put that in here, um, but, and these aren't my, my maps, so, uh, I don't want to act like, but, and then these are them broken down individually, so here's, uh, the airfields, uh, this one is electrical, I believe, hold up, let's double check that, uh, nope, that one was bridges, then this one is the electrical grid. This guy is a, uh, the um, gas pipeline infrastructure. This is the rail line. And this last one... Oh, did we skip over waterway? Do I not have waterway in here? I appear to not have waterway in here. Let's fix that real quick. Alrighty, fixed. All right. Um, so those are the the considerations that we have to take into account. So what's going to be happening? So there's a couple of different things of what can play out and what I'm going to talk about what potential things could spark it. But let's start with um, the key battleground spots. So um, and we'll kind of use Paul Fahrenheit's uh, model in a sense of like where the lines are going to break down. So his theory is that it's going to break down based on state lines so let's use that as a, a kind of uh, key thing so the big thing that's going to be uh needs to be considered is the fact that um blue team uh basically controls the coast and a couple of uh major cities with the on the internals um and red team controls basically the heartland uh while this is one continuous area in theory a big 
thing that needs to be determined is which way the Navy's going to break. Because this doesn't look like a continuous area, but if they have the Navy, they can get a lot of supplies in. And most importantly, um, Red Team is going to have to be self-sufficient with all of their uh, supplies internally. They can't ship stuff from the outside. I don't think shipments from the outside are going to be possible. Not possible. I think that's going to be of limited utility or capacity. The main reason for that is because um, I see kind of a potential uh, 30 years war kicking off where basically all of the world is kind of split between a world war and a civil war type situation, kind of like how China was trapped up in during uh, the Second World War. Obviously, you have the 30 years war and all the, the a lot of the civil wars that were going on around that time. Uh, that I believe that birthed the nation state. Um, and so I think you're going to have, if Europe's in absolute turmoil, you can't get weapons and arms from them because they, they need all of their weapons and arms. If Russia and China are currently at a war footing, you're not going to be able to get weapons and arms from them. And you might be able to get them from India, but I've never known India to be a, maybe they produce a lot of weapons and uh, ammo and stuff like that, but I've never known them to be a mass producer of, um, armaments. The United States does produce a decent amount of arms, but there there's like six uh, major uh, foundries throughout the whole thing. And another thing to consider is a lot of the supply line issues that we're going to see. We basically had a test run of in 2020 when they did the lockdowns. So uh, bullets and stuff like that, you couldn't get uh, primers, so you couldn't produce bullets. Uh, and so bullet prices went through the roof. That's going to be a major issue in making sure that all those supply chains are correlated and have the things that they're going through. The advantage, good or bad, depending on your perspective, is America basically has enough resources internally to uh, fuel a war with itself. So you can see that as good or bad, depending on your perspective. <clears throat> um, the If Blue Team gets control of the Navy, which considering they're, they basically control all the ports already... Um, it's very likely that uh, Red Team's basically going to be blockaded and they can bring in a lot of resources from the outside. So that's something that needs to be kind of considered. Um, on top of that, basically, uh, all high-tech stuff is going to be out the window because all that stuff, if we've seen with the Russia-Ukraine conflict, all that stuff gets broken really fast. Um, equipment gets churned through. Uh, we've basically, the United States and Europe have basically burned through their uh, military stockpiles of weapons already. Uh, if they're going to burn through them with a, a war the scale of the China or the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which isn't that large of a, a conflict, uh, there's no chance that we don't burn through all those supplies on uh, that quickly for a major conflict. On top of that, you have things like uh, Obama, who was dropping so many bombs during uh, his presidency that we basically ran out of guided missiles towards the end of his presidency. So if we're running, burning through stuff on that uh, scale, and that was a very low-intensity war, um, when you compare uh, something that's going to be an all-out... Like, if you look at the intensity level of, like, the first American Civil War, sure, it had less tech, but the supply demands and the amount of uh, equipment used was much, much higher. And um, there was a lot of stuff supplied by the United States, but a lot of that stuff got imported uh, from the Crimean War from Europe. Uh, to keep that war going and funnel it and feed that war machine. I don't know who or where that um, that equipment's going to be coming from uh, if America starts falling apart. Uh, I guess Mexico is a potentiality, but I don't think they're going to be a player because they have all those cartels that are running in place down there. And they're that's a, America going into civil war is a big opportunity for them. <clears throat> um, 
So I don't think there's going to be any high-tech stuff. Night vision and body armor and artillery. Uh, artillery is simple enough that you could you can build that, but all the trucks, all of the microchips, in like you saw um, all the cars that got, uh, you couldn't build them because they didn't have microchips. Well, who produces all the microchips? China? Okay, well, why would they be sending us microchips? So that, like, in theory, they might, just because, like, America ripping itself apart might be in the Chinese interest, but I'm not. that's not necessarily a positive. And with the uh, America in such turmoil, they're probably just going to want to keep the chips for themselves and use them in their own uh, domestic production. So uh, that's a major issue. Uh, like I said, there's, like, six key... Um, arms manufacturing locations or, uh, or uh, armories that produce most of the uh, bullets and stuff like that in America. So those are going to be key, uh, six key locations to cover. I think there's there's one in Minnesota, there's one in Illinois, uh, there's one in, uh, I think Springfield might have one, Missouri. Um, I think there's one uh, in Nevada. Those are the ones I can think of off the top of my head. There's two others as well. Uh, there might be one on the East Coast uh, near, like, Maryland and stuff like that where a lot of the Naval Academy, or, like, I think the Naval Academy and West Point are over there. Uh, there might be one near there. Um, anyway, all of, uh, you're going to burn through ammo at a much, much higher rate than people think. People right before World War One didn't think they were going to be burning through that much ammo. They had a stockpile of, like, uh, 40,000 rounds or maybe it was maybe it was as high as a million but they were they're churning through ammo at a rate of uh 10,000 a month they burned through their stockpiles in no time flat you kind of see um russia hasn't burned through their stockpiles in the russian ukraine conflict because they have the soviets are <laughs> from what i've seen and heard of the soviet stockpiles that it, their stockpiles are ready for a major conflict with another uh near peer adversary they're about the only ones that I've heard of that have a stockpile to that level. And that's because of Soviet paranoia that that was going to happen with America. And that's primarily in artillery, old artillery shells and uh, towed artillery. But as we've seen, that pays off because when you have to mobilize and equip that many people, uh, you're not going to be able to equip them with all the high tech stuff that goes to your special forces and your elite units. You know, you, you go special forces and the next down is like your Rangers, your air forces or not air forces, airborns, um, those types that are going to be running special missions where you want to make sure, the, and those are your valuable assets, you want to make sure that uh, the special missions they're running, you keep those guys alive as much as possible. Um, but, you know, just think about uh, the chips, all the things they need to go into. So I'm, they're, I'm pretty sure they're using night vision. Uh, they're used in all the trucks and cars. Well, you need to haul that that stuff to haul other stuff. They're using, um, they're used in tanks. They're using uh, missiles. They're used in helicopters. They're used in jets. Um, on top of this, are you going to be able to secure the materials that you need uh, and all of the supply lines to be able to build jets in the middle of a conflict like that? How many different places are they coming from? Um, are you going to be able to secure every last little component, or are you going to have to cut some stuff out and massively simplify literally everything to make it so that you can just get something onto the battlefield? Uh, I think it's going to be the second. <clears throat> Um, microchips, so microchips are going to be a major bottleneck. And then, you know, there's, there might be little things that we can't even think of, uh, the, you, you, that it just, it's in, uh, one of the enemy territories. And so therefore you can't build it on top of that. Uh, yeah, red team has more area, but all the factories are in the towns. So all of the means to produce the, uh, heavy equipment and, and artillery and all that stuff rests in basically blue team territory. So that's something to kind of consider too. Uh, oh, going back to the point of my uh, shell example, uh, 
So they burned through, they were burning through 10,000 shells a month. By the end of the war, four years later, they were burning through a million shells a month for ju and that that's like, that was like one side. I think that was like just the Germans were burning through a million shells a month. So uh, any advantage that exists ahead of time in terms of stockpiling and stuff like that will quickly be burnt out. Um, I know people always talk about, oh, well, you know, the Republicans are the ones that have all the guns and stuff like that. Well, you know what? If there's no bullets in that gun, it don't fucking matter. Uh, and so I don't, I, I rather doubt that the average gun owner, gun nut type person has 10,000 rounds, uh, 10,000 to a hundred thousand rounds ready to rock and roll with, uh, each of the different calibers that they have. If they do great, but even if they do, that's a, you have to somehow logistically get that to a place where the, those rounds can be effective and useful and stuff like that. Now that's a small enough amount that you could probably just load that into your car and, and wherever the front line is, ship them with your car over there. And there, there could be like, you know, uh, teams, actually there was an interesting, um, video I watched that talked about the logistics of, uh, like the hundred years war. <clears throat> and that was one, one of the things they did. They'd come and they'd be like, Hey, we need like a hundred areas from you guys and this many sheep and this much wheat and stuff like that. And then the town would come together and they'd pool all their resources. And then when they'd show up, they'd, they'd gather up all of the, um, resources, uh, that the town contributed to the war effort. And then they would ship it to the various spots. They, uh, they'd ship it to a port and then the port would take it to France so that the English army could be fed and resupplied with weapons and all that stuff. So that, that might be something that's, uh, going on, but that, uh, needs to be considered oh on top of that you have combines right combines use microchips as well there's so many things that uh our supply lines are very fractured if uh, all our war breaks out across america how many of those supply lines are you going to be able to secure across that thing maybe most of them uh but it's it's going to be kind of hard to tell and uh it's it's not super clear uh which side ends up in the situation where they're going to have the bigger logistical, uh, issues. Um, if you looked at the South during the, um, like the South didn't have like the industry and stuff like that. The North did. And both of them were fairly continuous areas, but you, they, you know, they had trouble feeding their army and stuff like that. And, uh, all these things. Now it's a little different because, um, the North had a lot of, uh, key farmland and stuff like that in their territory. And they do in blue teams territory as well. Uh, to a certain extent, you know, um, California is a pretty big, uh, producer of, uh, food and things like that. If they're going through a drought, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, and then even the East coast has plenty of, uh, places where they produce, uh, food and, and such. So those, I think they have enough, there's enough split between both States that I don't think food will be a major issue. Um, but, uh, key resources like iron so that you can make steel so that you can make, uh, trucks and and trailers and tanks and, uh, artillery and guns. Um, all that stuff is much less secured in America's case. So we'll kind of see, uh, how that ends up playing out. Also another X factor to add to that is the cartels. Uh, the cartels basically already run California and they basically already run a lot of, uh, they're, they've basically done the reconquista where, uh, back in 1846, when we ended up taking Texas and California and, and basically the whole Southern United States away from Mexico, that was because there's a lot of internal issues within Mexico. And there was a lot of, uh, Americans that had invaded Mexican territory that is now Texas and California. And they basically, when the, that internal, 
uh, struggle was going on, they basically rebelled. Mexico didn't have a, a means to uh, kind of fight back, and then America came in with their army to... Uh, Mexico didn't have a means to fight back because they were fighting each other etern- internally, and then America came in with its army and smashed them uh, to take that territory away from them. Well, now the reverse is going to happen. America is going to be in a conflict with itself, and the cartels are basically just going to take over the local governance of that, that area, and America is going to be too busy fighting itself to be able to do anything about it. So California, uh, areas like California and Texas and stuff like that might just uh, end up back in uh, Mexican or Mexican cartel uh, hands. And considering the amount of uh, Mexicans that have moved to these areas, uh, those areas might not even be in red team or blue team. They might be on Team Mexico. Uh, I guess that's green is one of the key colors in their uh, flag. So let's go with Team Green. Um, so that entire area might be removed from play, which adds kind of a new chess piece of the whole thing. Do, uh, does America come together to try to fight that off or, or how does that all work out? Considering most, of uh, there won't be really much or any Americans there. I see us just kind of seeding that ground and, uh, fighting over what's left, which then makes it look a lot more like a civil war type situation where you had the North and the South, right? Because you're basically... Uh, got those states again. It's split up a little bit more. You're going to have Minnesota probably on Team Blue uh, and, like, Illinois on Team Blue, but then, you know, the South is still the South, and then the North industrial area, but a lot of that's been de-industrialized, so uh, how much can they put out uh, production-wise? Uh, oh, and then another thing that, that connects Team Blue's area that doesn't necess- that doesn't immediately seem like it is all the Great Lakes, right? Uh, if Michigan's blue and Minnesota's blue... Um, you can use the, they could potentially capture, uh, Wisconsin and use the Great Lakes to get, uh, a key resource, like, uh, the northern part of Minnesota has a ton of iron ore. It's the number one spot that iron ore comes out of in the United States. You get that, this, why, that's basically how the old school industrial center was worked, is iron ore came out of northern Minnesota, went over to where the Rust Belt is, and fed all those factories in Pittsburgh and, and stuff like that. And then that produced the industrial stuff that then went to the ports in like New York and stuff like that, and then shipped out to the rest of the world or went into uh, various spots within the United States. That's how the industrial base was set up. How quickly can that get reset up uh, with the loss of an industry within America? Hard to know, especially if there's a, a conflict going on at the current situation. But uh, yeah, the cartels will be are in a good position and and most poised to take over because they already live in a uh, chaotic state where uh, where force is the rule of law. And there's, <clears throat> depending on how well the various governments conduct themselves when this kind of conflict break, breaks out, uh, oops, sorry about that, um, <clears throat> When this various conflict breaks out, you might see a lot of uh, local gangs and stuff like that in inner cities and stuff like that rise up and and take uh, action, uh, as you kind of saw with Chaz, right? Chaz was like, oh, we're go- we're a bunch of hipster uh, lefties that took over this area or whatever. And then some thug with a gun rolled, and he's like, I'm in charge now, and this is what we're doing. And everyone just kind of fell in line. Uh, and Because they're, uh, people of that nature are used to working in a uh, might-meet might means right type uh, situation where your general uh, American is not used to that. So whoever's used to that uh, rule uh, rules of the jungle type, type kind of thing 
is going to be better set up to, they're going to be the competent one that's going to be making orders and because people desire order and just someone that seems like they know what they're doing, uh, they're going to be the most competent in this type situation and so they're going to end up taking over. Uh, that could change. There, there's other factors that go into that, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw uh, various cartels and gangs rise up in prominence because now we're playing their game. Um, and then the last little part is how is this going to kind of kick off and what various things to kind of uh, consider in terms of uh, who's going to be fighting this war. So <clears throat> uh, one way I could I see this potentially kicking off is if there is a draft for if we get into a war, and this is one of the reasons that we wouldn't get any uh, supplies from Russia and China and uh, Europe is because if World War III kicked it off. So let's say there was a draft for World War III. Um, are people going to take up that call to arms and go and go fight that war? Maybe, but you could also have draft riots because now, unlike uh, the COVID lockdowns, the COVID lockdowns, the ask was uh, go home, don't work, watch Netflix, um, and get paid. Well, you know, well, I saw that as an absolute disaster for our economy, and we're currently feeling the effects of that. Uh, for the average person, that's like, that sounds great. Um, and if I wasn't worried about our overall system and stuff like that, if, hey, if I could just kick back and enjoy the, the nice days and read and um, and not have to work and stuff like that and get paid to do so, that sounds absolutely excellent. But that's not how economic activity and growth and all that stuff works. So that's one of the things that we're, one of the issues we're facing. So now when you're given the choice between uh, get drafted and go die on the steps of, uh, in the steps of, cold steps of Russia or in the rice fields of China, or die fighting for your country and trying to uh, take back control from people that you think are wrongly have taken power and stuff like that. Well, now it's like, well, I'm going to die either way. I would rather fight for this cause. And so it ends up kind of changing the calculus in people's mind in terms of uh, risk and stuff like that. Because now it's not a risk of, uh, well, do I... Like, no one's going to rise up right now because everyone's fed and uh, there's no threat to your life. If there's a threat to your life via the draft, all of a sudden that, that changes things where it's like, well, I'm I'm basically in harm's way already, so I might as well kind of take out, go the glory route. Um, <clears throat> another thing that could tri trigger this is what we're currently experiencing, which is the collapse of the financial system. Uh, I will kind of see what happens uh, there, but, um, you know, as economic... Economic issues like a Great Depression are going to add a lot of stressors to the internal structures of America. Could that cause fracturing within America? Very possibly. Does it have to? Not necessarily. So we'll kind of see how that plays out. Uh, it's not super clear as to which way they would break. Another aspect to kind of add to that is um, uh, kind of Gen Z's various uh, outlooks on stuff. And uh, kind of the neat culture, which is not an education, employment, or training. Uh, these people are kind of lost. They don't really have a, um, a purpose. And uh, a lot of these people are in the 18 to 30 range, which is prime uh, warfighting demographic uh, age. So them getting drafted might be a boon to their uh, self-worth and stuff like that. And so uh, and gives them a purpose and, and things like that. And so they're willing to do it on top of the fact that Gen Z is, um, uh, what's the term? jokingly suicidal, uh, sarcastically suicidal, uh, to the point that maybe like they do have higher suicide rates than normal. And so that could develop into a weird, 
um, apathetic type uh, war situation where they're there, if you where you kind of see the Japanese uh, bonsai charges and stuff like that. Now the Japanese didn't do that because they were suicidal. They did that because of uh, like a crazy loyalty to uh, the crown or not the crown, but the emperor, emperor, and all that stuff. I don't think you're gonna get that same exact like. Uh, it's a lot of words until you actually see action out of people. So that one I'm I'm less concerned about. Now one uh, kind of going back to the tech thing. So I talked about how a lot of the tech and stuff like that is all scaling back. Well, if we're scaling back tech to that level where you don't have air, like you can't produce airplanes, uh, bullets are limited, you don't have any high-tech missiles and stuff like that, well, all of a sudden, uh, all the things that made modern warfare and people saying trench warfare was never going to work again are all of a sudden uh, viable uh, options. And if you look at a lot of the major cities and stuff like that, those are uh, prime areas to uh, set up sieges and stuff like that. That's what a lot of the, the infrastructure of the highway system and all this, all that stuff in there is uh, set to do. So that is another factor where uh, trench warfare will make a major comeback because it's going to be artillery, machine guns, and small arms fire that is going to uh, take the day in terms of being able to win these battlefields and stuff like that. And it's not going to be super clear where things are drawn, where lines are drawn, but you know it's going to be probably an, a mixture of uh, not civil war tactics in terms of like what. Uh, the line and column type stuff, but uh, a lot of early or later Civil War uh, was like a proto trench warfare type situation. I think we're going to see a lot of uh, similarities to that in World uh, World War One uh, type similarities. I think the trench warfare will develop a lot faster because, well, I can't say for sure, but in theory it'll develop faster because uh, we have the historical lessons learned from World War One and the various uh, strategies and tactics of, of what could potentially work. So uh, you have that aspect. Um, the one thing that's kind of a question mark is World War One was only only worked because America was basically shipping all of the arms and weapons and stuff like that into Europe to be able to keep that war effort going. So if we fizzle out and we we basically uh, have to go back to sticks and rocks. Um, not because of nukes, but because we literally are out of bullets and it's the only way we can fight each other anymore. Uh, that that kind of changes how things play out. I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but it is an interesting question mark. Uh, and again, that, that comes down to a lot of this logistical and supply line uh, question marks of can you get the supplies in to build the stuff? Can you get uh, weapons and arms shipped in or is there too much uh, stuff going on throughout the entire world to make that happen? Uh, one, uh, one example that might show that, yes, no matter what is happening, uh, arms will be able to get to the people of America to, so they can slaughter each other is Yemen. So I don't understand how this is possible. And I talked to, um, what's his name? Scott Horton about this. Uh, so he's been kind of banging on Yemen and stuff like that. And they've been basically besieged by the Saudis and the Americans for like eight years or something like that. And, you know, there's huge humanitarian crises going on where they can't get water or food and stuff like that. But somehow, after eight years of not being able to smuggle in food and water, they can still kill each other with various small arms and other weapons within the uh, country. And I don't know how that is possible, because if they don't have food, they should have run out of bullets as well. Um, 
but somehow they're still getting weapons in and they have so many weapons that have been dumped there through various other conflicts previously that they were trying to get rid of them just so they could get some food in and things like that. So um, it seems like uh, where there's a will, there's a way for the uh, the war horsemen of the apocalypse and uh, weapons and arms and stuff like that will flow into a conflict area. Uh, food, maybe not, but ways to kill each other definitely will. Um, that's just a kind of a maybe. I'm, I don't know or why they were able to continuously have uh, weapons in that conflict, but that was something that really stood out to me uh, when I was looking at that conflict. Um, anyway, that covers, I think, everything that I wanted to talk about. So hopefully you guys found that interesting. Uh, it's a little different look at uh, this kind of conflict and uh, maybe the shape of it, uh, some of the logistical concerns. Uh, whether or not we're even going to be able to kill each other over the thing because we might not have any bullets left after the first week. So if you guys uh, found that interesting, uh, give it a like, comment, let me know what you thought about it. Uh, there's, you know, pretty small YouTube channel, so if you comment, I'm going to be able to see it, which is uh, fun, you know, you get to interact with me uh, pretty directly. Um, anyway, if you did uh, find it interesting, please share it. I always appreciate getting more subscribers and, and new people kind of introduced to the podcast, so... Uh, that's all I have to say on that, and hopefully you guys have a good day. Goodbye.